Good morning, NBC, and anyone else who might be listening. First of all, I want to thank God for this opportunity to share God's word in this capacity. Praise God for technology, right, church? As most of you know, there are a few of our loved ones here at NBC who have tested positive for the coronavirus. There have been no new updates as of yesterday. God is still in control, church, and do not forget that he is in control as our sovereign and loving Father, and we are in good hands. We will continue to cry out from the depths of our soul, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. And by God's power, church, we will be a light to the world, right? We as elders praise God for how many of you are glorifying God through this time. We have heard and been part of ourselves ongoing prayer chains and fellowship through social media, video apps, and even the phones. We need to stick together, church, during this difficult time. This is evidence that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and that his church will prevail, prevail even to the ends of the age. Before I get started with this sermon, I want to assure everyone that the elders are trying very hard through prayer, discussion, to keep the services running in the most creative and efficient way possible during this coronavirus pandemic. We thank you for your support and, and your prayers. They're very encouraging. So this week we will have the audio sermon and we'll be working on getting the video for next week. So now let's get started with God's word. That's what we're here for, right? Let's hear God's word. Please, please take your Bibles out. If possible, turn to the book of Romans. And we will continue our study with Romans, of course, in accordance with our mentorship program. Let's see what God has to say to us today through his word. I'm going to read from our text today, which is in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 18 through 26. I will give you a few moments to find the passage. Hear now the word of the living and true God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the living God, church. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your ministry. We pray that you will pierce our hearts this morning, that you will use your word to encourage us, to, to uh, set us on fire, to inspire us, and even to uh, bring us to repentance if necessary, Lord. Help us, God. We need you. We need your word during this time. Help me decrease as you increase and let your word go out with clarity we pray in jesus's name amen okay church notice the first two words in verse 21 church the first two words in verse 21 but now right church these two words are so glorious martin lord jones the great british expositor of romans once said that there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than these two words. 
but now. Some of you might remember last year when I preached on Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we were reminded in that passage, the first three verses, that prior to our conversion, we were dead in our sins. Right? Ephesians says we were following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. We were walking in uh, disobedience. We were following the passions of our flesh. We were by nature children of wrath. And then the two powerful words came, right? Entered our souls, but God lost in rebellion on our way to eternal hell. And Paul said through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but God, who's rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And Paul does this again, church, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit after two chapters of bad news, right? Paul says, but now. He shows us a stark contrast between our life outside of the saving grace of God and our life united to God, of, to the God of glory through Jesus Christ. Donald Barnhouse states, quote, a careful study of the epistles of Paul shows that in his mind, all time was divided into then and now. Then was everything that had happened before Christ died. Now is everything that is contingent upon the death of the Savior. Then we were dead in sins. Now we are alive forevermore. Then we were under a law, slain. Now we are under grace, raised from the dead by the gospel, unquote. But before we learn, church, what Paul has to say to us about these uh, powerful words, about this powerful good news given by God, let us get back to the context of the passage. For as I have said before, you cannot really understand the depth of the good news, right? The gospel, unless you understand the depths of the bad news, our sin before God. The first two verses of the text, namely verses 19 and 20, they give us this logical conclusion of what we learned last week, church, that all of mankind is totally depraved, evil in the sight of God. Notice verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul tells us here that God's holy law, right? God's standard of measure or, or measure of righteousness that flows from all that he is has a divine purpose that sets up the glory of the gospel and that is to show us to show us that no human being will be justified in God's sight no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight when we give account to him on judgment day why as verse 20b states since through the law comes knowledge of sin or as Paul stated in verse 9 last week for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin and what did Paul tell us were the results of this depraved nature? No one is righteous. Didn't we learn this last week, right? No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good. There's no fear of God before our eyes. Church, the chief end of man is to glorify God through our life, to show the world, to show angels and demons, to Satan, how loving God is, how holy God is, how merciful God is, how creative God is, how righteous God is. But as verse 20 states, verse 23 states, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As I mentioned last week, there are some who will push back on this truth, right? There are some false teachers that would push back. They would, they would say that they wouldn't understand that we fall short, and as a result, we're in danger of standing before God as the holy judge that he is. The issue here, church, is the lack of understanding of how holy God is. Amen? 
Church, the Bible tells us so much about who God is and how holy he is, how righteous he is, how just he is, as he reigns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's see what God says about his holiness. Isaiah 6, the Bible tells us, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and no one called to an- and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation 4, 8 tells us, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. 1 Samuel 2, 2 states, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Psalm 97, 2 states, Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And our last verse on God's holiness and justice. And there's so much, so many more, Lord, of people. Psalm 56. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So I think it's clear, church, God is righteous. God is holy, and we are not. This is the dilemma. This is the dilemma. The question that needs to be answered is the question that Job put out in Job 25.4 when he said, How then can man be right? before God. How then can man be right before God? This is a very important question, church. In the midst of of the coronavirus, the global pandemic, many are praying to their so-called gods. Many are considering their mortality. Many, through their false religions, are asking this question, how can I know? How can I know that I am ready to face God? Maybe even as a Christian, right? Maybe you, even as a Christian, um, are are struggling with this, right? Maybe you're forgetting or doubting the the glory of the cross, meditating on how how, how sinful you are in light of Romans 1.18 through 3.20, but forgetting how gracious God is to his people. Well, we are so blessed today to be on this passage, a passage that gives us, church, the heart of the gospel. A section of scripture that most theologians say is the summary of the theme message, the theme passage in Romans uh, 1, 16 through 17 is the theme passage of the whole book of Romans. And many theologians say again that this is the summary of that. Church, this passage today is the greatest news any soul can receive. It gives us the answer to this sober question of how How can, how then can man be right before God? And the answer to this question is the theme of the message, and that is God provides the righteousness we need, and he gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ. God provides the righteousness we need, and he gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Notice the first point of the sermon, that we get Christ's righteousness. We get Christ by faith alone. Church, oh, what a glorious truth this is, right? The doctrine of justification by faith alone. The doctrine that John Calvin said during the Reformation was the hinge by which all true religion turns. Church, you cannot speak of the gospel without addressing its central aspect, justification. How do we get right with God? This is what justification is about. I'm not going to go through an extensive teaching on this doctrine today because the next couple of weeks we'll see more about this doctrine in, in, the, in the text to come. But I do want us to rest in this awesome truth that Christ's righteousness comes to us through faith. Christ's righteousness comes to us through faith. Notice verse 21. But now, 
But now, there it is, right? We are standing unrighteous before God, wrath of God abiding on us, no eternal hope in our path, and God says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Church, God provides the righteousness we need and he gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Also notice verse 25a says, Whom God put forward, talking about Christ, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then in verse 26b, the Bible says that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has what? Faith. Faith in Jesus. Oh, church, God provides the righteousness we need, and he gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ, and it comes to us through faith. Now, if it, if it comes to us through faith, what was the law's function? Right? What, what about the law? What about our works? Is it faith plus the law that we are reconciled to Christ? Is it faith plus works that gives us this righteousness that we need? Well, let's see what Paul has to say about this. Notice verse 21a again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Right? Apart from the law. We see right here that this righteousness that comes through faith has no connection to us following the law. How could it? How could it? We can't follow it, right? We can't follow it. Not even for a moment, church. As I reminded you last week, what James says, if you break one of the laws, you broke them all, right? You break one of them, you broke them all. Romans 3.28, our text for next week says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The Bible says in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Church, as the first point states, we get Christ by faith alone. This is such good news, church. Such good news. As you sit home contemplating your mortality during this time with the coronavirus, wondering if you are right with God, maybe, right? Do not look to yourself. Do not look to yourself. Don't measure your good works. You need to look to Christ. You need to fix your eyes on Jesus and his righteousness. And by faith, he will give you the hope you need. He is the one who, who followed the law perfectly, church. He is the one who trusted in the Heavenly Father with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind and strength. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For our sake... He, meaning Christ, I mean, meaning God, made him, that's Christ, made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Christ, church, we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. Church, we get Christ by faith alone. Church, there is a practical way to see if you are trusting Christ alone. For your salvation. There is a practical way. We use this sometimes. I use it often doing evangelism. Ask yourself, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Right? If you died today, would you go to heaven? If you say, I don't know. Right? I don't know. My question is to you is, why don't you know? What are you looking to? What are you depending on? Usually when I speak to a Roman Catholic or a Jehovah's Witness who claim to have faith in Christ, they never have assurance in that answer. 
right? They never have assurance of their salvation. Their answer is usually, well, I hope I go to heaven. And then when I ask why, they have some doubt. What do they do? They go right to their works. You guys might have experienced this, right? They go right to their works. Am I going to the Mass enough? Am I being faithful enough with the sacraments? Am I doing enough charity? Jehovah's Witnesses would say, am I putting enough hours in when it, when it comes to outreach? The Mormon church has the same problem. The same problem. They even have in their catechism that they are saved after all they can do. They deny this truth, that it's all Christ. Second, Nephi 25-23 says this. This is part of their uh, scriptures. For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ. You see, the Mormons believe in Christ. It's debatable. <laughs> they don't believe in the Christ. It's a false Christ. But they would say they believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. And then the next line says, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved. And then they say, after all we can do. After all we can do. Church, this is a false gospel. If our salvation depends on anything that we do, we are in trouble. But the truth is, the glorious gospel tells us in verse 26 that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It took Martin Luther, the great reformer, many, many years to acknowledge this glorious truth that salvation is by faith alone. Prior to, to Luther's conversion, he lived his life as, as a pious monk. Many of you, you guys probably know about this story. Luther believed in Jesus. Luther studied the Bible, taught the Bible. But Luther lived for many years a life of torment and fear before God. Luther didn't have any peace before God. Luther knew from the depths of his soul, his soul, that all his religious rituals had no saving value before God. He went through the religious treadmill, right? He, he was a devout Roman Catholic, but there was never any peace. Luther struggled to cry out to God as Abba, Father. Luther couldn't understand what Paul meant when he said, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God? Love God? Luther once said, I don't love God. There are times when I hate God. Where did these words come from? He was supposed to be a devout priest. Luther didn't understand that this righteousness that is needed, that God commands us to have, is not from within ourselves, even with the help of God's grace. But instead, it is a righteousness from God that we get in the person of Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The day came, though, where Luther found himself in the book of Romans and came across the words, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther finally understood that we are justified, declared righteous by faith alone. Many church historians, after reading Luther's biography that details this experience with God's grace, believe that Luther was saved through faith around this time. <clears throat> when he came across this powerful doctrine of justification by faith alone, Luther once wrote, Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. There it is, church. How familiar is that testimony, church, for some of you? I know from personal experience that the first time I understood that my works were nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God and that Jesus Christ became the righteousness of God that I needed, I dropped to my couch that day in my apartment and cried out to the Lord to save me. So many of us have been on that religious treadmill, right? Like Luther, 
never feel in peace with God. But we have a Savior, church, that gives us this righteousness that we need. God provides the righteousness we need, and He gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And as our first point clearly states, we get Christ by faith alone. Let's proclaim Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 to get together, church. I'm guessing many of us know this one by memory. I think it's a perfect time. Ready? By grace, you are saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. Oh, how awesome is it, church, in that text in Ephesians, that our faith is a gift. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, that no man may boast. And that is what our next point refers to when we get Christ's righteousness as a gift. That's our second point. We get Christ as a gift. Our first point was we get Christ by faith. And now we get Christ as a gift. Notice verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul says there's no distinction, right? We all fall short of God's glory. Our righteousness that we get in Christ has to be a gift. Jesus told this to the woman at the well, remember? Remember, church? As Jesus was ministering to this lost woman who was living a life of sin and struggling at first to see the spiritual truths in Jesus' words, he said this, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Church, the gift of God is Jesus he is the gift. And because of his righteousness, we can have a salvation that is poured out on us as living water, continuing to flow and flow through us as we abide in him. What does this really mean, church? What is Paul saying here? Why, why is this such good news? That our redemption, that our being declared righteous before God is a gift. It means that if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you are evidence that God has chosen you before the foundation of the world and has given you the gift of redemption. In church, our God is faithful. He will never take back that gift. Notice this powerful golden chain of redemption passage. It's in Romans, Romans 8. And be informed, I'm going to read it, be informed that this passage is in the context of suffering. Right? So, so consider this glorious truth in the midst of our context of tribulation and distress of the coronavirus. The Bible says, and we know, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Oh, church, this gift of salvation began in eternity, and it's being carried out in time. Notice the last part of the chain. Remember we had, he foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us. And notice the last one, he glorified us. He glorified us. There will be a day, and oh, I hope, we all hope it is soon, right? That Jesus will come back, give us new bodies. He will raise, raise us to new life. We will finally have that glorified body that we long for. Glorified church for all you who are tempted to, to be scared of this coronavirus. Rest on that. Rest on that. That is your future hope, that you will see Christ. You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As the theme states, God provides the righteousness we need, and he gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And it is fixed in the heavens, church. No wonder Paul stated in the later verses, after this golden chain of redemption, what does he say? What then shall we say to these things? 
right? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but what? Gave. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things, church? And then it said, Paul said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or the coronavirus, right? Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We have Christ's righteousness, church. We are reconciled to the judge of the universe who now is our heavenly father. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, right? For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Oh, oh, we need you, God. Oh, we need you every hour. We need you. Our one defense, our righteousness. Oh, God. Oh, God, we need you. Amen. Now to our third point, flowing from our theme that God provides the righteousness we need, and he gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ. We get Christ as our substitute. Our first point was we get Christ by faith alone, right? Then our second point was we get Christ as a gift. And now we see we get Christ. This is the last point. We get Christ as our substitute. This is where we discuss the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer defines this powerful doctrine this way. Penal substitutionary atonement refers to the doctrine that Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. God imputed, this means, church, uh, he credited, credited the guilt of our sins to Christ. And he, in our place, bore the punishment that we deserve. This was a full payment for sins, which satisfied both the wrath and the righteousness of God so that he could forgive sinners without compromising his own holy standard. It's a, a great definition. Notice verse 24, church. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is a very pregnant, powerful two verses here, Lord, uh, uh, church. <clears throat> there are three words here, though, that I think need to be defined before we, before we move forward. What did Paul mean when using these words at the time of the letter? It's important to understand. The first word, justified, right? We already know what that one is. Pastor Chris done, has done a remarkable job uh, defining that. He's done a remarkable job defining each of these that I will mention, actually. But the justify one we've talked about a lot, it means to be de declared righteous, okay? Justified, to be declared righteous, to be declared righteous before God, to have a right standing before God. Redemption, the word redemption, this word comes from the idea of a ransom, okay? So where, where someone would buy back a slave in ancient times, right? This meant, means to be freed or liberated, and then propitiation means where God's wrath is where God pours out his wrath. R.C. Sproul defines propitiation this way. He says, propitiation means to satisfy the demands of justice. In biblical terms, it means to satisfy the demands of God's wrath. Make no mistake about it, church. God is angry, right? God is angry with the wicked every day. Just look around us, right? And yet his wrath needed to be appeased because his holy character demands it. But don't misunderstand this doctrine of propitiation, church. It is not like some false teachers claim where God is angry, right? We got an angry God in the Old Testament, and Christ is this loving, gentle part of God who had to twist the Father's arm, so to speak, to get him to forgive us. No. That's heresy. The cross is a triune act. All the members of the Trinity, being one essence of unity, have planned and carried out what happened at the cross, church. 
So let's try to keep that in mind when looking at this point that we get Christ as our substitute, that he willingly came to die for his people. For the Bible says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was Mark 10, 45. So what does this mean? That Christ is our substitute. Church, this is a profound truth. A profound truth. J.D. Greer taught his church that the shortest and easiest way to define the gospel is Jesus in our place. That's how many of them in his church say the gospel. They just say, Jesus in our place. Right? It's the same idea here. He is our substitute. And as verse 24 states, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood, meaning by his death. Church. <laughs> It was always the plan, always the plan for Jesus to be the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what Romans meant when we see in Romans 1, early in our book, in Romans 1, 3a, where Paul said, A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then he said, Which he promised beforehand, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. Or what Paul says here today, where, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it, right? Right? This is not an anomaly, the gospel. This has always been the message. We had it in the Old Testament in seed form, but it's always been the message. Also, we see in 25 through 26, Paul tells us, this was to show God's righteousness, right? We just saw this verse. We'll look at it again. To show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Church, God provides the righteousness we need. He gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And this has always been the plan, church. All the way back to the garden, we see the first seed of the gospel. In which the theologians call the first gospel. The Bible says in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Galatians gives us the, uh, the fulfillment of this passage. Church, the Bible says in Galatians 4.4. 4, but when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. There's so many other verses that point to the cross, that point to a redeemer that Job cried out for when he said, For I know that my redeemer lives. Right? He said, I know my redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Isaiah 53. What a glorious passage. Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. But he was pierced for our transgression. Right? We know this is Jesus, right? He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, right? The iniquity of us all. Jeremiah 23, 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Amen. Amen. Our text in verses 25b through 26 says, This was to show God's righteousness, because his divine forbearance he passed over former sins, was to show his righteousness at the present time, that he may be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul is telling us, do not question God's justice, right? Paul is thinking, I know you Jews are probably wondering, what about the old covenant? What about the past? God had a relationship with his people without Christ. If it is Christ's death that justifies us and it is needed, why was it needed back then? Right? Why wasn't it needed back then? As verse 25 says, God passed over the former sins. Why can't he continue to do it now? It's the question, church, that liberal Christians continue to ask. The false religions continue to ask this question. Why can't God just forgive? 
right? Why can't he just turn a blind eye to sin? Isn't he loving? We answered this earlier, right? One word. What was the one word? Holiness, right? But where was his holiness in the old covenant? Why didn't God send everyone to hell right away? Why didn't he give us an opportunity to be saved? The answer is he waited. He waited because of the cross, because the forgiveness is secure. It was always secured and offered in what Jesus did on the cross. God didn't turn a blind eye to sin. He used in the old covenant, right? He used the sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs as a picture or a shadow, foreshadow of the one to come, namely Jesus Christ. There was forgiveness, church, because of the cross that was to come. But the only way that there would that their faith would be justifiable is if he came. And he did. And he did. Jesus Christ was put forward as a propitiation. The only one who could truly take care of the sin problem, church, is Jesus Christ. And as he said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. As the theme stated, God provides the righteousness we need and he gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Let me share this illustration I think does a, a job, a pretty good job in explaining the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. Imagine a drunken husband, okay? This drunken husband gets in a fight with his wife. He ends up beating her to death with the bedroom lamp. Horrific, right? His day in court arrives. He finds out that his life is in the hands of the county judge who happens to be his father-in-law. A distraught father who lost his only daughter, yet he sees his son-in-law broken and humbled, begging for mercy. The father-in-law who is known in the county to be a righteous, honest judge. After hearing the case and all the evidence against his son-in-law, he has no other choice but to carry out the justice that his son-in-law deserves. He drops the gavel down. He declares him guilty. He sees his grandchildren in the courtroom crying, crying out, calling for their father as he's carried away by the guards on his way to a 20-year-to-life sentence. But the judge cannot do anything. Why? Because he is just. And justice needs to be carried out. As the guilty man is being taken away by the guards, the judge steps off the bench, takes off his robe, orders the security guard, release my son immediately. Take off those cuffs now. The judge grabs the handcuffs from the guard and orders for them to be placed on him. Instead, the son-in-law is still guilty, church. Nothing has changed. But the punishment that should have been poured out on him was taken upon his substitute, namely the judge. His loving and merciful father-in-law. The judge takes the place of his son-in-law. The judge is carried off by his own declaration. The man is free, he says. Justice is served. Love is carried out. Mercy is revealed. Church, this is an illustration. Not a perfect one, right? All illustrations fall, fail at some point. Fall short at some point. But this is a decent illustration of the penal substitutionary atonement. Church, Jesus propitiated. He took the wrath of God upon himself. He set us free. Justice and mercy met at the cross. Oh, what a glorious doctrine, church. Church, God provides the righteousness we need, and he gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And don't miss the glory of this church now living in the new covenant age. Don't miss how, how this is lived out practically now that we have Christ in our place as we stand before God clothed in his righteousness. Hebrews 10, 19, 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way 
that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. As the third point states, Christ is our substitute, church, right? Christ is our substitute. We deserve the cross, but Christ took our place. And as this passage in Hebrews tells us, we can now enter God's presence. Oh, what a glorious thing. We can enter God's presence with confidence because of Jesus' blood, because of his substitutionary death on the cross. Dr. Stephen Wellam states, As there is nothing but between the Father and the Son, so there is nothing between the Father and us, because we stand in faith in union with Christ. Indeed, in Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The blood of animals isn't enough to solve the problem of sin. But Jesus' blood is. The blood of animals isn't enough, church, to solve the problem of sin. But Jesus' blood is. Oh, church, this is a tough time for us, right? Many of us are not used to, to such fear standing at our door. So many of our loved ones who are in danger because of this virus, right? We are, we are desperate. We are so desperate. We have nowhere else to go but to the throne of grace that has been entered by Christ, by his death. And we can go with confidence because we have his righteousness. And we do this as a family of God, right? As a body of Christ, church. Use the technology as many of us have already done. Find time, church, to contact your mentees, your mentors your fellow ministry partners, contact each other, right? Call upon the name of the Lord as our sovereign father for mercy and peace together as a body of Christ. Let's ask our sovereign father, church, to help us glorify him even when our prayers are not answered to our satisfaction, right? And let the world see what a savior we have. Let the world see what a powerful God we serve. Church, we get Christ. We get Christ as our substitute. We have a way to the Father, and his name is Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, right? Oh, this, this gives us so much peace. This should give us so much peace in this time of tribulation. The Bible confirms this in so many passages, right? That the cross is the answer of how men might be right before God. We see in Ephesians 2.13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who are once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Romans 5.19 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Ephesians 1.7 and 8 says, In him, meaning Christ, right, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Church, how are we to stand before a righteous God? How are we to stand before a righteous God? God provides the righteousness we need and he gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And as this point states, we get Christ as our substitute. And as we were reminded in our first point, all we have to do all we have to do is trust in Him, in Him alone. Receive Christ as a gift from the Father, and we are set free. Oh, wow. Church, what love, what love has been bestowed on us. God demands a perfect righteousness from us to live, for us to live for all eternity with Him. And as the theme states, God provides that righteousness we need, and he gives it to us, the person of Jesus Christ. And as we learn from our first point, we get Christ by faith alone. As the second point told us, we get Christ as a gift. And the third point, we get Christ as our substitute. So in closing, church, Christ is the answer to our dilemma of how we stand before a holy and righteous God. Christ is the answer 
Church, Christ is the answer of how we glorify God to the whole world during this time where fear is knocking at our door. Church, Christ is our only hope. Christ is everyone's only hope. So let's walk with him, right? Let's walk with him in this storm. Let's be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer, and sing from the depths of our souls to our family and our friends. Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, we stand. Ah, oh, amen. I hope this was an edifying experience for everyone. My prayer, church, is that we take this glorious truth, we take all these glorious truths of the gospel, and we bring them to our troubled world. And we do it in creative ways, right? In wise, in a wise and creative way. I love you, church. I miss you all, and I hope to speak to many of you soon. God bless. Let me just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you, God, for showing us in your word that you demand a perfect righteousness from us. But you also show us that that righteousness that you command, that you command, you provided, God. Thank you, God, for giving us Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking us out of the world, bringing us into your kingdom, giving us eyes to see these glorious truths. Help us, God. Help us, God, during this time. Please, God, heal our loved ones, Lord. Give us the power to pray as our Lord Jesus did. But let your will be done. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.